Hello and welcome to the Hay Festival podcast, where we bring you conversations with the world's greatest writers and thinkers. Currently, we're busy putting the final touches to our programme for Hay Festival 2022, and we are so excited at the prospect of returning to the field and being under canvas for the first time in about three years now. It'll be a joy to reconnect with all the additional staff, stewards, contractors and artists who really make Hay Festival what it is. It also means there's a lot of reflection within the team about speakers who have inspired us over the years. One writer who feels like a big part of Hay Festival is Eric Ngale Charles. Eric has worked with us from educational outreach projects like our Scribblers tour to onstage performances and interviews. For a touch of Hay Festival nostalgia from the team, this week we hear Eric's incredible story about overcoming trafficking and homelessness in the period between leaving his home in Cameroon to finding asylum in Wales. Here he is talking to Jenny Valentine at our programme for schools in Hay Festival 2018. My mother said to me, My mother said to me, my mother said to me, Ngale, when the field is ready, when the grass is ready, fill your basket to the brim, carry it to the top of the hill, do not sigh, do not show any signs of tiredness. Mama I was young, just like you. My bones were weak. I filled my basket to the brim. I carried it to the top of the hill. I was tired. I sat upon a tree trunk. I used two stones as pillow. I fell asleep. In my sleep, I saw the devil and his friend shouting, Mankama, Mankama, exile. Do you mean exile? As in the case of the stick insect, to cross seas, to climb mountains, seeking peace and finding none? Or do you mean exile as in the case of Mowbray? Alas, the part I had in Woodstock's blood, Dotmore solicits me than your exclaims to stare against the butchers of his life. But since correction lies in those hands which made the fault, place we the quarrels in the wheels of heaven, whom when they see the hours ripe on earth will rain hot vengeance on the offenders. Or do you mean exile? To cross mountains, to cross seas, seeking peace and finding none. You see, in my flight, I saw my grandmother. She was rearranging the flowers on my grave. She rewrote the signs on my epitaph. Eric was here. Eric is no more. I saw children, barefoot children like you, dancing barefoot in the rain. I saw bees pregnant with nectar carrying me home away from exile. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Like Jenny said, my name is Eric Ngale Charles. Eric is the name my mother calls me when I've done something wrong. So when I go into the house and she Eric, I just walk back slowly <laughs> and I disappear. 
When she calls me Ngale, Ngale means someone who can create thunder. For those of you who will be on Monday, I'm doing a show on Monday, and you can come and see me creating thunder on stage. The name Charles, you're going to have to ask Prince Charles about that, because I don't know. When I was 17 years old, I, I received a letter from a judge, and they invited me to come to the courts, because unknowing to me, my father had died, but when he died, he left a six-bedroom property for me. But my father's family had gone to courts, and they had changed the will, saying that I wasn't my father's son. So I went to court with my mother, and the judge asked my father's family, Ngale, the boy sitting next to you, do you know him? My father's family looked at me, and each and every one of them rejected me. I saw my mother cry. You know, seeing one's mother cry is never a good sight. So I decided that when the clocks on the wall says 8 p.m. and only shadows were lurking outside my father's house, I would initiate a program. I was going to burn the house down with everything that was in it. But my luck changed because I received an invitation letter from two universities. One was in Bruges in Belgium, and the other one was in the place, uh, Ontario, in Canada. So I'm planning what I'm going to do to my father's family and my father's house, but I have this beautiful dream. Finally, I'm going to travel to the white man's land, to the land of milk and honey. You know, this is my dream. I'm excited. I'm going to Belgium, so I leave my village with my small suitcase, and I go to the capital of Cameroon, which is Yaoundé. I have never been to the Belgium embassy or the Canadian embassy, but I met people, you call them human traffickers. Do you know what a human trafficker is? Yes? Thank you very much. I, 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 I became a victim of human trafficking. So I met these people. They were well-dressed, and they, they took my passport, took my money, and they issued me with a one-way student visa. Upon arriving in a place called Malta in Europe, I was supposed to get a transit visa. And this transit visa was supposed to take me to Belgium. And when we arrived in Malta, a lot of people transited. Some people went to Switzerland, some went to Canada, some went to Belgium. But when it was my turn, they said, sorry, Mr. Charles, unfortunately, you have a one-way student visa to Russia. I had three dollars in my pocket, not even in dollars, it was in, um, in a Cameroonian currency, I had three francs CFA. So I'm thinking, I am listening, I am hearing my mother's voice, she's there thinking her son is in Belgium, but here I am in Malta with a one-way student visa to Russia. I landed in Moscow, in Sheremetyevo. And the officer goes, excuse me, what's your name? I was so cold, I, my lips would not move. What's your name? I couldn't say. I look on the wall, and the alphabets were upside down. 
I couldn't even ask for coffee. So I get outside the airport. Where do I start? Where do I begin? Oh, my way, wake. Mina maunga lena liunga. O mawe mbundi wake. Mina maunga lena liunga. For you see, a consanguineous event is trailing. A pendulum swings, revealing a flashback so dark, it's a constant deja vu. Now in Moscow, I'm a butterfly thinking I'm a bird. It can't be so. For I am Odewale, the current king of Kutuje, who fathered Ojola, the wife of late king Adetusa, and the soothsayer Babatunde, he proclaimed Ngale, the heirs of your kingdom, lays on your father's hands. A curse of God's complete. A third more opulent than your sisters, please speak. For nothing, I mean nothing can come out of nothing. Father, as happy as I am, I cannot heave my words into my mouth. I love your majesty according to my bonds. No more, no less. Many your speech, young lady, else it marks your fortunes. Father, you have begot me. You have loved me. You have fed me. But I cannot marry like my sisters to love my father so. And there over there, Edmond is grinning. He's playing along the strings of Gonoril and Regan. And I rage against the conspirators of my father's clan. You see, the turbulent outside mimics the volcanic eruption in my heart. So I took solace in a place called Pechatniki in Moscow. See, when I was in Pechatniki, something terrible happened to me. I was taken hostage by 30 Cameroonians. For I realized I wasn't the only victim of human trafficking. There were a lot of people. But I was the only one who came without any money. So after about one year in Moscow, I find myself in a place called Pechatniki. And I'm taken hostage by 30 Cameroonians. And I was tortured. I was beaten up. At the point of death, hot knives, knives were placed on a gas cooker. And when the knives were really hot, they started by placing them on my arms and on the back of my neck, on my left knees. And then I was dragged into a bathroom and stripped right down to my boxer shorts. And I was beaten. And then to make matters worse, in the background, they were listening to Give Me Hope, Joanna, Give Me Hope, Eddie Grant's music. And they were drinking Baltica, a very strong Russian beer. You know, two years ago, I was at McInclath. And I was giving a workshop on creative writing. And I met this wonderful writer called um, Julia, Julia Foster. And after the event, Julia gave me her book, and it's called Way to Go. 
and she was talking about um, how, when her parents divorced. But in chapter 12 in this book, Julia, to show her dislike for her mother's new boyfriend, instead of defrosting the prawns by putting them underwater, she would put them in her mouth and defrost them. But in the background, give me hope, Joanna, give me hope. And now this is triggering this memory for when I was in Pechadniki, Moscow. And these guys tortured me, tortured me, tortured me. You see, at the point where I had given up ghosts, because I actually saw my, I left my body, and I enjoyed the torture. But I accepted what these strangers were doing to me in Moscow than what my father's family did to, to me in Cameroon. I loved them from the age, from the, when I was born to the, when I was 17. I hugged them, I played with them. We went fishing together, we swim together, but they betrayed me. So even though in Moscow, 1998, these guys were about to kill me, I accepted that torture. For it was better to be killed by strangers than to be killed um, than what my father's family did to me. The only thing that saved me was my mother's voice. And I could hear her saying, Agbe olo atimbangundu, Agbe olo e atimbangundu e, We ye uma we ya we anje e, We ya uma mo kaka ma. My mom was having a go at me, shouting and saying, Mingale, are you mad? You are going to be buried in a foreign land. Your spirit will crave that one journey to go and meet your ancestors in Mount Cameroon. So who is going to bury you? I am not going to share my tears, for I cannot afford a flight to Russia. My mom was shouting at me. Where you, As fate will have it, these guys, they bundled me up and placed me underneath one of the beds. And I was taken hostage for three days. I was only saved by one of my friends, Johnson, who reported this incident to the Russian Armok. Armok is uh, the special forces. These guys are so huge that a handcuff will not fit to their hands. These guys came to the hostel, and I was rescued. But I stayed in Russia again for two years, two months. You see, Russia is that country where, in order to get out of Russia, you need an exit visa. So I decided to go to the Cameroonian embassy in Moscow. It's in a place called Ahutni Riyadh. I went to the Cameroonian embassy. They took my passport. They go, oh, Monsieur Charles, excuse me, Paul Francais. At the time, my French was atrocious. My French was horrible. But everyone in the embassy spoke French. They said, no, you are not Cameroonian enough. You are a Nigerian. So you have to go to the Nigerian embassy. I, I went to the Nigerian embassy, and everybody was dressed like Mr. Adewubli Wubli. I couldn't even understand what they were saying. So I'm stranded. I am at the Cameroonian embassy. I'm begging for them. Please, let me go home. And the worst thing you can imagine for a mother, somebody had gone home and told my mother that I was dead. 
as luck will have it, I started working in a petrol station in a place called Richskaya. Rich the only problem is I was so illegal, so though they paid me 100 rubles in Richskaya, by the time I got back to Pechadniki in the hostel, all the money had gone. I had to pay for the train tickets. Because I was illegal, the police would stop us. <laughs> and one thing, um, it happened in a place called Metishi. I was with my friend Johnson. Uh, this is in one of the plays, one of my plays that I'm writing. Johnson and I used to sing, Iruki, Imuka, Iruki. This was the song Johnson and I sang to minimize the fact that we were hungry. So imagine you've left work and a, a Russian police officer will say, Astanavit, Astanavit, Astanavit. Have you got money? Have you got heroin? And then they will drag you to the back of the market and punch you for no reason. And then they will take off our shoes. And it's in the middle of the winter, so we we'll walk barefoot in the snow. Sometimes we use cardboard boxes to make shoes. And then we we'll always sing this song. Iruki, imuka, iruki, imuka. And then they'll drop us at police station. They'll serve us churni kleb, black bread and, and tea. We could not recognize the horizon. The one thing that saved me was that at this point, I spoke the Russian language so good that I received a letter from the uh, United Nations and they were doing free repatriation for those who had overstayed in Moscow. The only problem is I had to prove to them that I had been staying there for more than two years. I did, because my language was so good. Ten days into being repatriated back to Cameroon, the United Nations stopped the program because about 70 other Africans had applied for this program. The United Nations issued them with $3,000 each, bought their flight, but on the day they were supposed to be repatriated, no one turned up at the airport. So, exactly two years and two months later, I managed to buy myself a Zimbabwean passport. The only problem is, I was 21, and Mr. Osmili Tamvani Majola from Bulawayo, the Zimbabwean, was 67. This was not my only problem. Now, how do I convince the Russian authorities to issue me an exit visa using the passport of a 67-year-old Zimbabwean? My language was so good. And one of the reasons why I was tortured by these Cameroonians in the hostel was because um, I had taken somebody and took $600 from them. Instead of paying $600 for their university fees, I paid $300 and kept $300 in my pocket. And the, 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 the university rector came and looked for me, and eventually it led to my torture. Anyway, I met Svetlana. And I paid Svetlana $300. So using the passport of a 67-year-old Zimbabwean, Svetlana took me to the airport in Moscow, placed me on an aeroplane which said, Russia, Heathrow, Heathrow, Johannesburg, Johannesburg, Harare. When we arrived Heathrow, I wanted to leave the aeroplane. The immigration officer said, oh, Mr. Osmili, sorry, you have to wait. Everyone left, and they took me to my adjoining lounge at Heathrow Airport to wait for my continuation flight. But I don't want to go to Bulawayo. 
I'm not, I don't want to go to Harare, but how do I convince the British immigration officers that um, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a Zimbabwean, I'm Mr. Osmili Majula Tamvani, I'm not 21, but I'm 67. There were about seven women, white women, they were traveling to South, and they were looking at me, excuse me, boy, so boy, where are you from? Like, I'm from Moscow. Oh, Moscow is very cold, is it? Like, yeah. So where are you going then, boy? I'm going to Bulawayo. Oh, we don't like Mugabe, do we, girls? So I'm thinking to myself, so where are you going? And they say, oh, we are going to South Africa. Like, oh, are you the one percent white that um, own 99 percent of South I said, no, I'm not going to this country. So let me take my chances. So I said to the guy, can you take me downstairs to go and see an immigration officer, please? And I go and see an immigration officer called Mr. Mallow. As soon as he saw my password that he looked at me, he just laughed. He took it upstairs and all the other immigration officers, they looked at me and they were laughing. They said, this is not you, is it? But they never asked me that. All they had to do was just shout at me and I would have just taken my small suitcase and I would have been in Zimbabwe by now. Mama, my Tata mawe yonji yalenji yalene. Wamanu kato muli mekoli koli zikbe yahu. Rina muko muli mekoli koli zinakbe yahu. Rina ne juju kena mevembe wane ya henere ya mango. You see, when I first took refuge here in Wales, I wanted to tell my Welsh friend what had become a cesspit of crime, which was Pechatnik in Moscow. I wanted to tell my Welsh friend why, as a 17-year-old boy, I had left my village at such haste. I wanted to tell my Welsh friend why I had crossed seas, why I had climbed mountains, seeking peace and finding none. These were all the ideas I had in my heart. I wanted to tell this story so much, but my Welsh friend, he said to me, Ngale, Shariai Kamrai? I said, Dim. I said, Hofitri Yog Shariai Kamrai. So my Welsh friend placed his hands on my shoulder and he said, Ngale, witnesses like you, should stand over there facing the public gallery. You should not divide yourself between the judge, the jury, the prosecution, and the defense. For witnesses like you are examples of time. For you see, my friend Sengale, in some societies, silent is gold. Talking is silver. In some societies, he said, one can survive a fall from a 14-story building, but simply answering yes or no to a question is tantamount to decapitation. He said to Mingale, when two elephants fight, it is the grass that suffers. He said, Mingale, look around the world. In Syria, the elephants are fighting. In Yemen, the elephants are fighting. Ethiopia and Saudi Arabia just signed a deal so that in Yemenis, the elephants are fighting. 
in northern Cameroon, the Boko Harams, in Somalia, Al-Shabaab. Everywhere you look, the elephants are fighting. But Ngale, he said, here in Wales, your lights will shine and not under the gallows. Thank you very much. Okay, just to recap, um, Eric was disinherited by his family at the age of 17, um, and they pretended not to know him in a court of law so they could get his house, which you said is a bit of a rubbish house. <laughs> um, and then he was trafficked to Moscow, where he learned to speak fluent Russian in how long? Three months. Three months. Yeah. <laughs> Easy. Uh, yeah, woo! <laughs> what, um, what other languages do you speak, sir? Well, I'm starting to forget Lingala. Oh, well, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. But I speak, okay. in, in terms of Europe, I speak English, French, and Russian. And I speak Bantu, I speak Bakuri, I speak Pidgin. Lingala, I'm like starting to forget. So, but um, okay. I'm at my most comfortable when I'm speaking English or French. English or French? Yeah. No, say no, English and Russian. Russian. Say Sorry. Say <laughs> no, not French, seriously, not French. I take that back, I take that back because at the moment, there's a small thing going on in Cameroon between the French and the English community. Which, Some... is why, which is why, I don't know if you got that bit of the story, when he, when he went, age 17, age 18, yes. to the embassy in Moscow to ask to be, to, for them to help him to get home, they said, you're not Cameroonian because you don't speak French. That's correct, yeah. Can you just tell us about going home? <laughs> yes, I, I, I went back to Cameroon for the first time in August last year. So... So you left when you were 17? Yes, I went when I was 39 years old. Yes. So you've been away, I can't, my maths is really good, you've been away <laughs> for 22 years. That's correct. But you see, the love and exile, the love that I had for my family and the love that the people around me in Wales showed me, kept me going. And this love was too, was too powerful, too overwhelming for the, the, the emotion of suicide that I felt. So when I went home to Cameroon, um, I was so excited to see my mom. So when I was about... 16, I took the risk of asking my mother whether she loved my dad. And this, there are certain questions that a child, you cannot ask your, your mother. So I said, Mom, you always stand and stare at this window. Tell me why. So she slapped me in the back of my hand. You see, Ngale, that window there, that's where I first saw your dad. So, okay, so I'm okay, I can take this question one step further. Okay, so Mom, did you love my dad? She looked at me as if I was crazy. But she never responded. Instead, she goes, um, she sang this song. The song simply means you went on a, long, on, a, on a long journey and you are back. Officially, you are my husband. So without embracing my mom, when I first saw her at the airport, I said, That means time stopped. She was transported back to that day that she never told me that she loved my father, but she sang this song. And she never said to me, you are welcome back. She greeted me as Oscar. She called my father's name. And then she said Ngale because she heard. I had come back from my long journey, not only as a son, but I was back as my father. Didn't she throw sand at you just in case you were She alive? did. 
She did, because the weird thing about this story is, some close members of my family had gone and told my mom that her son was dead. You see, and even though she'd spoken to me on the phone when I came to Wales, when I went back, she still had that. She even to, to, till now, because every time she speaks to me now, she goes, "Oh, I'm so glad I saw you." In fact, um, there's this poem that I wrote, and it's called "Au Revoir, Mom," and it goes there somewhere. It says, um, "Seen one's mother cry is never a good sight." So she took my hands into hers. And one by one, she gave each of my fingers a gentle bite, saying that no matter where I go, she will be with me and I will be with her. So this symbol is the only thing that I remember. But I had to write this poem down because I was so scared of never seeing my mom again. But I did. She's alive and she's kicking. She's still, she's still having a go at me if I, if I don't. Eric. Yes, <laughs> I run away. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Hay Festival podcast. Next time, we will be hearing from Raina Wynn, author of the award-winning book The Salt Path. Raina and her husband Moth go on an extraordinary journey around the southwest coast path after losing their home and facing a serious medical diagnosis within days of one another. That will be out next Friday, so join us then to hear the story. Please share this podcast with your friends and give us a rating. This podcast was presented by me, Poppy Evans. See, or rather hear, you next time.